So this afternoon, what I want to talk about to you guys is how to make innovation smart, simple, and sticky. And one of the key parts of making that happen is perfecting the art of asking questions. We don't ask enough questions. That speech, titled Act Like a Child, was given at the two-day hackathon Tech Day by Moody Mahmoudi. He is the founder and CEO of Next, a company that focuses on design thinking and provides businesses with digitally guided processes, challenging the way they traditionally approach problems and solutions. Now, this might sound like a bunch of business jargon and gobbledygook, and trust me, when I was first introduced to these concepts, it took me a while for me to wrap my head around this, but there are some great examples of how Next's unconventional approach to problem solving has proven to be very effective. My name is Sam Breakgear, and welcome to Brains Bite Back. This is your podcast for all things related to psychology, technology, and our society. I invited Moody to join me on the show to discuss how Next works, what their digital guide process looks like, and what makes it different from traditional problem-solving approaches. In this episode, you will learn how Next helped tackle Amsterdam's overcrowded bike parking problem, and why out-of-the-box thinking was so important to solve this issue. Moody also explains the motivation and meaning behind his Act Like a Child speech, why learning is not necessarily a linear process, and the top three most thought-provoking questions asked by children. Here's a quick peek at the first one, what are shadows made of? And I can assure you the other top two are just as bizarre and interesting. So stay tuned for them. Disclosure, this episode contains a client of an Espacio portfolio company. Sam, if Bill Gates was down to his last dollar, what would he spend it on? Good question, Sam. Well, if you haven't seen or heard it already, one of the most popular quotes in PR is from Bill Gates, who stated that if he was down to his last dollar, he would spend it on PR, and with good reason. Why? Because quality PR turns unknown businesses into established industry leaders. If you're looking to build industry credibility, reach new markets, or grow your business, our sponsor Publicize is a digital communication agency that has helped businesses like yours gain exposure in major online publications for the past decade. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Well, I'm really excited to see how this goes because occasionally we get like difficult concepts and I'm always interested in seeing one, if I understand it better by the end of the call and two, if I feel that like the podcast itself is a piece of audio which can also help anyone listening understand this concept better. So I would love really to, think- hoping to get there, right? I'm really hoping that we could use this podcast and stuff that we can also use as a communication vehicle to others for, you know, just general public to start understanding what we're trying to do and this broader, broader ambitions that we're after. So I, I appreciate you pushing us to make this simple and, you know, understandable by, uh, by, uh, by, you know, common mortals. <laughs> Definitely. Well, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to be your ambassador for that. So maybe we should start off with that. And if you can explain to our listeners who you are and what your company next does in its most basic form. <laughs> sure. So I'm Moody Mahmoudi. I'm one of the co-founders of Next. Next is a business design software. What we have done is take the principles and practices of design thinking and lean methodology 
to simplify that fundamentally, it's a problem-oriented approach to building solutions and value propositions and creating new offerings and business models and experiences. We've codified these principles and practices into an end-to-end -end software that our clients use in order to do three things. First, bring their existing products and services into 2020. If you think about it, Sam, most of the products you use, may that be the way you pay your utility bill, the way you handle your bank account, the way you, you know, book travel and so on, was created years, if not decades ago, for customer experiences that just no longer exist. Cust organizations need to bring themselves into 2020, the way we use stuff, we want to book travel, the way we want to wire money to our friends, the way we want to interact with our utility provider, the way we want to interact with the city we live in, etc. So that's use case one. Second one, experience development, meaning most of the products are no longer about the consumption of the offering itself, but it's about the experience that it provides to us as a customer. Think of your bank account, which is a great example. A bank account is no longer about, no longer a place where you put money and you withdraw money and then you wire money. You know, you want to use your bank account in order to ambition your personal goals. You may be saving up for a new tennis racket, for a new boat, for a new home, for a baby that you have on the way. You expect your bank to provide you with pie charts and bar charts and percentage completion and all these kinds of stuff around the simple bank account you used to have 10 years ago, five years ago. It's about the experience you have with the money that your bank is holding on your behalf. And third, it's about the disruptive stuff, Sam, right? You know, most of the organizations that use our software are essentially facing transformation that they have never seen before. It's unprecedented, probably once in a generation type of change and transformation that is going on, regardless of the industry you're in, right? People are just interacting and wanting to engage with these organizations differently. Same examples that I used earlier, bank, utility, travel organization, leisure, right? Whatever it may be, you're just engaging with these people differently. That means that they need no longer can say, hey, we just continue to do what we did yesterday better tomorrow. No, that's not good enough anymore. We're gonna have to do different things tomorrow in order to be able to accommodate what people want from these organizations, the way they want to interact with them, communicate and engage with them. That is pushing these organizations to step into territories that were not theirs before. Banks are becoming platforms. Utility companies are becoming, you know, uh, solar panel installation companies on the top of your roof. Uh, you know, I mean, companies are changing and morphing at a pace never seen before. Healthcare companies are becoming data companies. You know, it's all over the place. And as companies step into these unknown territories, well, they need to do it in an organized way. They cannot just rely on some crystal ball uh, uh, you know, environment where they say, hey, you know, we're just going to wait for something magical to happen. No, it has to be intentional. It has to be organized. It has to be disciplined as they step into the space, pour resources there, and will then over time essentially evaluate how they are doing. So clients of ours use our software to create these disruptive business models that they wish one day will essentially replace what they do today completely. And including in this disruptive stuff, Sam, one of the ones that I personally care very much about is around the sustainability approach in this. Because customers, as they're imagining these new ways of working, building products and servicing their customers, they're also trying to do that in a more sustainable way. You know, you may have heard the word circular economy, meaning 
everything goes in circles. There's no waste, right? Whatever you put out comes back and then is reused and then sent back again in a form of a circle. So a lot of that transformation is also handled by our software as we help clients through this journey. I can appreciate that. And yeah, there's definitely many instances when I think it's 2020, why are we going through these archaic processes? So definitely I'm on board with that. And also it's funny how you talk about how companies change and how they're, they're forced to change. And the greatest example I can think of is that I remember hearing that Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix ages ago and they passed on that opportunity. And uh, yeah, where are they now? <laughs> and Netflix is like the biggest, probably like one of the biggest companies in like uh, entertainment or media and certainly streaming. So yeah, definitely I can understand why you would want to apply this uh, thought process to, to businesses. But there is one example, and when we spoke before, you gave an excellent example of how your company has helped Amsterdam with its bicycle parking issue. <laughs> would you be able to explain what the problem was and how Next helped to solve that? Sam, for anybody who's been to Amsterdam, you probably know that it's like the bike, bike capital of the world. There are more bikes in this city than there are humans. I think the last statistics that I looked at, Sam, there was around 850,000 bikes, whereas there's just about 750,000 people who live here. So bikes are everywhere. One of the big issues that the city of Amsterdam wanted to tackle was parking for bikes. Because of course, with so many bikes around, people would just ride their bike to the restaurant and they'll tie it to the tree, to the pole, to the whatever they could find that would be stable, that would make sure that their bike doesn't get stolen. But of course, that creates a lot of pollution, you know, visual pollution, space pollution. People can't move around in front of the restaurants areas, for example, anymore, or in the shopping centers anymore. So it creates a lot of frustration in the city for a lot of people. Now, the strategy around communication with citizens may that be for biking or other things, but more specifically in the context of biking sound, have been that we will make signs that we will put on top of a pole. So we'll put these poles about one, you know, one and a half, two meters off the ground. On top of it, we'll pay, put a really big sign in red that says, please do not put your bike here. Okay. Now, what they notice is that, well, people keep putting their bikes there. And of course, as a city wanted to bring some organization to bike parking so that bikes have allocated locations, this was a big problem because people just weren't following the indications and recommendations of what they wanted the city to do. And so the strategy was what time? Let's make the sign bigger and redder. So, you know, we would just make it bigger and then bigger and then bigger and then bigger and nothing was working until essentially the city, uh, actually the city of Amsterdam was one of our first customers when we launched the company said, hey, maybe we need a different approach to this. So what they started doing is leveraging this practice of business design, problem-centric thinking, not jumping into solutions, which was what they were doing. Let's just make it bigger and redder. That's just solution thinking without really understanding, well, what's the problem? Why isn't it working? So what did they do? As part of this problem-oriented thinking in business design, you have certain methodologies and techniques. One of these techniques, which has a really cool word, Sam, is called doing a wild safari which means what? Go out there and observe the individuals that you're trying to influence in their natural habitat. Like you do a safari, right? When you go and watch lions and giraffes and tigers, right? Well, not yeah. tigers, but <laughs> buffaloes, right? Um, so what did they do? They went, for example, to Amsterdam Central Station or to the big shopping districts or to the area, restaurants and bar areas, right? To figure out why are people not looking at stuff? And Sam, you know what they discovered? They discovered that people don't look up Meaning I come with my bike, I don't look at this red sign because it's above my eye level. 
So I just tie my bike to the first thing that I see and then off I go. People just don't look up. Doesn't matter how big you make it and how red you make it. People don't look up. So with this new discovery, what they did is they embarked on a new path of understanding how they can address this problem. And finally, what happens now is now all the bikes, bikes parking signage in Amsterdam is on the floor. They paint it on the floor, saving the city tons of money of not having to make these posts and make these really big signs and color them and maintain them and fix them and all that kind of stuff and replacing it very cost-effective signage on the floor, which people can now actually see. So you actually have boxes painted, Sam, in the shopping areas where people say, put your bike inside here. And if you don't put it, then of course you get, you know, taking your bike taken away or they put stickers on it that says you should take it, it should be taken away, etc. And it's working amazingly well. I have, I'm, I'm so surprised to see Amsterdam so well organized with, with this biking now, whereas where we were coming from was essentially a bike jungle. There was mm -hmm. bikes everywhere. There was no organization. Now there is a real approach to this. And I think fundamentally, Sam, this comes back very well connects to the story that you pointed out around Blockbuster and Netflix. This is actually a concept that around, you know, around learning and unlearning, right? Which is actually increasingly popular in a time of change. Meaning the way organizations have gone about learning about things, understanding opportunities, think of Blockbuster's case with Netflix, or think of the, my example of the city of Amsterdam. It's always linear. We know something, we have a certain amount of knowledge, and learning means piling on top of it in that same direction. Meaning we have a mental model in which we are operating. There's a mental model the way we serve our customers, may you be a bank, a utility, a city, an entertainment provider, Netflix or Blockbuster. We have a mental model and we cannot, you know, the only thing we can do is go further and further in that mental model. But what essentially is happening in a time of change now is we need to change this mental model. That means we need to unlearn before we can actually relearn re so that we can actually go in the direction of where the real opportunities and frictions are in the product and services that we are providing. Now, I don't know, Sam, if you, um, you know, if any of the, uh, if yourself or any of the listeners, for example, who don't live in the UK or, you know, uh, or a place where we ride, uh, we ride on the other side of the road. But this is probably a great example. Like when you go to, when I go to London and rent a car, I know how to ride on the other side of the road. What I need to do while I'm doing this is fight my urge to ride on the other side. It's not about that I don't know how to ride on, on, on the British side. It's the fact that I know too well how to ride on the other side. So it's about having, how do we unlearn those things so that we can relearn new things? And that's very, very important. Yeah, no, 100%, I agree. And I think that's a good example with driving on the right or left. I do have one question though regarding the bike situation. And I understand if you might not be able to answer it, but with, with people tying their bikes or locking their bikes to certain objects, was that related to the fact that there wasn't sufficient space in general to like park their bikes? Like what happened after that? So they saw the sign, they can't leave their bike there. Did uh, Amsterdam then open up like some other kind of like space where they could officially uh, lock up their bikes? Or was it just like they were just like left in the dark? I mean, I'm just really curious because if I was going to go lock up my bike and there's a sign saying you can't lock your bike up here, I'd be like, where, where can I lock it up? Like, do you know, yeah. do you have an answer to that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, Sam. I think this really comes back to this mental model issue, right? Meaning because we were all tied into doing the wrong things, the city of Amsterdam had never even understood that there may be a spacing issue. 
because it was all about enforcing people not to put their bike in the wrong in the in the wrong place, right? But once you actually start guiding people and people are saying, okay, now I understand what you're asking of me, and now I have this and this and this and this other problem, then you're actually changing path and now working in a different direction where you're now removing friction points. So you're absolutely correct, Sam. I think over time we have created in Amsterdam more bike parking space. But the problem why people put the bike in the wrong place wasn't that there was enough space. It was just that they didn't know or they didn't pay attention or the signs were just the signage work was just not effective. Right. So, yes, I would argue that over time we've created more bike parking, but creating more bike parking wouldn't have stopped people from tying it to the wrong place because they just didn't even know that they should. So it's like this is what about the changing of the mental model so that we can build towards a more successful future. Right. In bike parking in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's almost like the first step, and then that that follows. Uh, so I'd love to move away a bit from this example, and I would love to talk about something that I know you're quite passionate about, and this is one of the main motivations, I suppose, that in my opinion, or at least it seems, has sparked your interest in this unlearning, relearning, and more than anything, codifying. Because you've stated that sales is a process that can be automated by software and managed through data analytics. And before that, it was just the voodoo master salesperson, the one who knows how to talk to clients, who was good with people and all that nonsense. Can you elaborate on this and highlight other examples of how you see software dominating other kind of esoteric concepts and ideas? Absolutely, Sam. So one of the, you know, to maybe to address this, maybe maybe I take a... I take a ride down history lane here. In 2011, I believe, Mark Andreessen, who uh, you know, some of you guys may know, was the co-founder of Netscape, the, uh, the browser, right? Before uh, moving on, doing a whole bunch of other things, and now running one of Silicon Valley's most successful VCs called Andreessen Horowitz. Mark Andreessen penned a very well-received and very famous uh, editorial in the Wall Street Journal in 2011, titled, uh, Software is Eating the World. Now, in his software eating the world, he argued about how essentially many things that we are doing are essentially being softwareized, if you wish. You know, in, at that point, he was arguing how, for example, the largest bookstore in the world is now a software company, you know, et cetera. And if you think about that trend, for example, you know, arguably you could say one of the most successful car companies today is a software company, Tesla. Right. The, the rocket company is a software company, SpaceX. I mean, these are all software companies. They were built from software for forward. Right. You know, your example of Blockbuster and Netflix. I mean, Netflix is a software company. It's not an entertainment company. Right. Now, this movement of software essentially eating into you know, our lives, may that be our personal lives or our you know, professional lives, is, is a huge trend. And you actually, if you think even further back, for example, you know, if you think the 70s or the 80s, where, you know, software started eating into accounting systems, right? Accounting was done on pen and paper back in the days. People would hack things together. Every accountant would reinvent the way they do accounting in your company in the wrong way. Until software started go getting into that space, automating those functions. The same happened to supply chain, production, et cetera. And arguably, one of the most successful transformations that where software became very, uh, very uh, relevant was in sales and CRM. The introduction of CRM, customer relationship management as a software category, happened in 1992, Sam. It's not that long ago, but it feels so long ago. Because today, CRM is a 50 plus billion dollar market. Before we had CRM, Sam, sales was voodoo and magic. When I was a child, I remember my father would tell me, Moody, 
Salesmen are artists. I was under the impression that you're born with this stuff. Either you're born with it or you're not born with it. And that's it, right? You know, because, you know, salesmanship was about how do you speak to somebody or what kind of emotions or how do you convince or skills of persuasion. You know, those may be relevant in some areas of work and business in our personal life, but in sales, it's got nothing to do with it. Sales, with the introduction of CRM, became a software-led process that is measured through data analytics. There is no professional sales organization today that would say, hey, you know, that measures sales based on, you know, I don't know, people's characters or mindset or personality. It's all about disciplined execution. You look at pipeline, our conversion rate, or, you know, your, how many X your pipeline is, how fast is it moving, what is the velocity of your pipeline. These are the kind of things we talk about in sales. So essentially sales, CRM, took the function of sales and converted it into a software-led approach, right, where the software manages the entire cycle. And I think, you know, we took a lot of inspiration from that. Right? If you think about innovation and transformation, you know, I remember when we also started thinking about this, innovation and transformation was also kind of like voodoo magic. You know, I was under the same impression that you're either born innovative or you're not innovative. It's actually not true because people mix up innovation with creativity. Yeah, you know, even creativity, I would argue, is a science, right? You can actually drive it. So the whole idea that we are after here with Next is how can we create procedures, guided experiences that actually picks people up, makes sure their creativity is channeled in a beautiful way towards the creation of value. And I think once we frame it that way, then software can play a huge role in that. Yeah. Do you think then that anyone could be a successful salesman then with CR with a CRM system? I think it's proven to say that you could take people out of university, put them into this sales pipeline, and they can probably do their job pretty well. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely think that it's a, it's almost like an arms race. I, I see it as in the sense that even if you had the best salesman without the CRM system, what you really want in an ideal scenario is that best salesman with the best CRM system. And I suppose that's what all companies are fighting for, or at least all sales departments anyway. Yeah. So I do have um, one final question for you. And you previously gave a speech titled Think Like a Child. Can you summarize for our listeners what you mean by this and explain the key takeaways from that talk? Sure. It's probably one of my favorite, uh, favorite topics at Next. Uh, and Act Like a Child is very much related to this, which is that of curiosity, right? This whole idea, this whole methodology around design and design thinking is around this concept of being problem-centered. Right? First, identifying what problems are we trying to solve, then understanding who are we solving them before we build solutions, try them out, roll them out, implement them, and be very successful. Now, this whole idea of problem centricity, of course, it ties into the concept of curiosity and why the topic of act like a child, because kids are the most curious amongst us, right? Actually, kids could arguably be the R&D department of the human race, because they're the ones who ask tons of questions. Now, I don't know, Sam, if you or any of your listeners have young kids at home, but, you know, they always have the finger raised, ready to point at something and shoot out a question. They ask lots of questions. I was looking at some research recently, Sam. Average four-year-olds ask 390 questions per day. And the type of questions, Sam, they ask are questions that are status quo challenging. They ask questions like, actually ranked by parents, what are shadows made of? Pretty cool. Where does the sky end? 
even cooler. And the number one, most difficult question asked by kids from parents, why is water wet? (laughs) My question is, when was the last time you asked a question like that about the work you do every day, the product you deliver every day, the service you provide every day? We don't ask questions like that. We don't ask questions that challenge the status quo around us, right? That really fundamentally say, why why are we doing this? What value are we trying to create? What do we want our, the, the customers or the users of our service to, to benefit, right? Benefit in what benefit they should get. So those are the kind of things. So the whole idea of act like a child was about essentially a, a, a fun packaging for a very adult topic, which is how can we actually bring this curious, curious, curiosity driven way of thinking and working into the boardroom, right? How can we have top executives reward people for questions, not answers? Because what has gone wrong, I argue, is in Act Like a Child, is, you know, we go to school, we're kids, we're very curious. We ask lots of questions. We're learning everything, of course, because we know nothing about the environment around us. You know, I came out, uh, you know, from my mother and I'm here in the world. I know nothing, so I need to discover everything. So I ask lots of questions, right? Then we go to school. And in school, you don't get top grades because you ask lots of questions. I used to ask lots of questions when I was in school. They would put me in the corner and they would call my parents, disrupting the curriculum. No, it's all about fitting in the box and giving good answers. You get good grades because you give good answers, not because you ask good questions. Then you go to your job. Your boss wants what? Solutions, not problems. You get a bonus because you showed up at your boss's desk with a list of 25 problems? No, you get good bonus because you came up with good solutions. And when it comes to innovation, it's the same. Everybody's about looking for ideas. Oof. Let's come up with the next big idea. Nobody's looking for problems what problems we should be solving. Well, let's just throw a bunch of ideas. It's like throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. That's really what it's all about, right? Whereas we're getting it all wrong. And and this really ties it up with this unlearning, relearning concept that we talked about earlier on. Because we cannot come up with proper ideas if we don't find these problems. And in order to open ourselves up to finding these problems, we need to let go of the things we knew yesterday. 25, something, you know, people with 25 years experience in an area Well, we don't want this download of 25 years because in the meeting an hour ago, we agreed the world had changed. So what value does that knowledge of 25 years ago have again? It's not there. We need to go and unpack and discover these new problems and create new understanding of what is going on. Now, in that perspective, actually, there's a very interesting psychology and neuroscience concept around this, which is called brain plasticity or neuroplasticity. It's about how essentially you can get your neurons to create new connections in your brain around about the topics that you're trying to address. And that is what we need to do. Not keep building knowledge on these past mental models and approaches to the world, but undo them and start discovering new mental models and making new connections in our brains, connecting new dots in the market so that we can deliver value to our customers in this new world that we all live in. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I have to say, I was blown back by the number of questions you mentioned that children ask. I reckon that could be a podcast in itself, children's questions, or a TV show, even if it hasn't been created already. And it's funny you should say that because that reminds (laughs) me of a story. Uh, When I was working in one of my first jobs while I was at university, one of my previous bosses said that I remind her of a four or five-year-old because I'm always asking questions like, why? Why is this? Why? And I think uh, I found the perfect job for me because my job is exactly that now. I just have to 
ask people questions which really interest me and I want to know more about. So I definitely completely understand what you're talking about. And I think that that's the right approach for sure. And as someone that's very quizzical, I think that, yeah, questions can be, they can be annoying sometimes, but sometimes also very necessary. <laughs> Not annoying at all, Sam. Uh, you know, there's, you know, honestly, it's, this is how the world is being built. You know, you know, very often, I'll, maybe just as, a, as mm -hmm. a closing remark here, you know, very often people think of, for example, some of the most successful companies in the world being born out of this, you know, out of thin air, aha moment and idea. You know, Google is a great example. People think Google was invented on the, you know, like as a, as a great idea. But if you actually read up on, onto Google, Eric Schmidt had an amazing saying a couple of years ago when they had interviewed him about how Eric runs Google. He was a C, former CEO of Google. Uh, and he said, we run this company on questions, not answers. So every day they wake up in the morning thinking, okay, what question can we answer today? What are the questions we should tackle tomorrow? Right? It's not about, hey, let me go and implement this new great idea. No, it's about those questions. And if you can hammer in those questions, unpack them beautifully to uncover those unmet customer needs that are underpinning that, then you are off to an amazing uh, start to creating value and, and experiences and products that your customers will fall in love with. Excellent. And um, for a final note, if people want to follow you or find out more about you, uh, how can they do that? And uh, how can they follow next as well? Sure. So on, on, on Twitter at Moody Mahmoudi, uh, also on LinkedIn. Um, so Moody, not with a Y, but with an I. So M-O-O-D-I. Um, and or uh, just uh, on the next website, which is nextapp.co. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Moody. Thank you so much, Sam. Take care. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. Visit their website if you want to find out more about their PR for growth packages, their free resources, or even schedule a call. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, you can follow us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Just search for Brains Bite Back and reach out to us if you've got anything to add or want to tell us what you'd like us to cover for future episodes at The Sociable. And go to sociable.co to find all our episodes and many other articles and topics just like this. We look forward to you joining us again. And until then, take care.